Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we seek to become like Jesus and live for others. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We're so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays for one service at 10 a.m. Also, if you're looking for a place to celebrate Christmas, we welcome you to join us on December 24th for one of our Christmas Eve services at 11, 1, and 3 p.m. You can find more details about the day at waterstonechurch.org. We look forward to connecting with you. Let's pray. Father, we want to invite your spirit who is here with us to be powerful in our midst. We pray that you would make your word live this morning, that it would challenge us and convict us and encourage us uh, to live for you better. Um, we, we thank you that you do that. We, we pray that this service would bring you honor and you glory. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, when it's your last sermon, and uh, they tell you you can preach on anything you want to, it, it's hard to say, decide what you want to say. I mean, obviously, I want to say it's been a privilege and an honor, and thank you, because it has been a privilege and an honor. And I am incredibly grateful for Waterstone and how it has been so good to me and my family throughout the years. But that's an awfully short sermon, and I'm not known for those. <laughs> so I was trying to decide whether I wanted to pick a passage or just share some reflections from my heart. And I decided I wanted to do both. I mean, during my whole ministry at Waterstone, we have really been committed to preaching passages of Scripture and trying to apply them to our lives. And the reason for that is we, and I, for sure, am convinced that the Bible can be transformative, uh, change us. And we've been committed to that. So I thought, why, why would I change that at the end? So I picked a passage. But I tried to pick one that reflects my heart and my passions and, and at the same time uh, articulates some of my hopes for Waterstone. It's one of the passages where Jesus talks about the church. He only does that twice. Um, it's not something he talks about much. But in this particular passage in Matthew chapter 16, I think Jesus lays out his vision for the church, what he wants it to be and how he wants it to operate in the world. And I think it's a, a passage that we need to pay attention to because in many ways I think the church has lost its credibility in our culture. It is often seen as hypocritical, self-centered, and self-serving. Uh, to many, it, it's become a kind of religious entertainment with churches uh, competing for consumers who are looking for the best religious experience or the best emotional high. And for far too many, what the church seems to teach and practice doesn't line up with the values and the teaching of Jesus. I think too many churches have missed the vision Jesus had for his people, his church. 
So the passage we're looking at is Matthew 16, verses 13, actually through 27. A key to this passage is the geographical setting where this conversation that Jesus is going to have with his disciples takes place. And, and it's easy to skip over. But at the very start of the passage, we are told that he has gone to Caesarea Philippi and there is going to have a conversation. Now, Caesarea Philippi is this, this ancient town uh, in northern Israel, and it's at the foot of Mount Hermon. And it was built up against a, a rock cliff. And along that cliff, along that rock face, and into the rock face were, were, were seven different pagan temples, including uh, a temple to Augustus, who was Caesar, the Grotto of Pan, um, the Temple of Zeus, the Court of Nemesis, and others. Uh, this is what it may have looked like in Jesus' day. Uh, if we can go back one, you can see this is what it looks like today. And you can see the runes uh, on that rock face. And on the left side there is a grotto or a cave. Um, in 300 AD, there was an earthquake that filled that cave up. But during the time of Jesus, the cave was filled with a, a, a pool of water and a stream flowing out, and the pool was incredibly deep. Josephus says they thought it was bottomless. And the worshipers of Pan would go into that cave, and, and they would throw their sacrifices into that pool. And if the sacrifice floated, then the gods were satisfied. And the, uh, I'm sorry, if it, it sank, they were satisfied. If it floated, then they had to sacrifice more. It, it was... Uh, an evil place, uh, the worship of the pagan gods at that time was incredibly immoral. It was a place to be avoided, so it raises the question, why did Jesus go there? I mean, Jesus had been down by the Sea of Galilee. You know, he's going to head to Jerusalem after this, and he decides to go 25 miles to the north to this city. You got to wonder why, because the Jews considered it a place to be avoided. A good Jew would never go there. Um, it was corrupt. It was depraved. And you kind of scratch your head, Jesus, why there? I think it's a perfect setting for what Jesus wants to say to his disciples, what he wants to teach them. I think Jesus is going there to clarify who he is and what his followers are to do and to be. So with the cliff and the temples and the grotto in the background, Jesus, Jesus has this intriguing conversation with his disciples. Pick it up in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus said, hey, what's the local gossip? What are people saying about me? And it's almost like Jesus is setting himself up against the background of the world's religions, their idols, their temple, their glory, and asking to be compared to them. And there's confusion. I mean, some say he's John the Baptist or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. People knew that he was important, but they weren't quite sure who he really was or how he fit in. Well, then Jesus makes the question even more personal. What about you? Who do you say I am? That is an important question. 
Not just who is Jesus, but who do you say he is? Who is he to you? How do you frame him? How do you picture him? How do you describe him? How do you perceive him? What's the framework in which you understand Jesus? How do you comprehend him? And and see, there's a, a problem when we ask ourselves that question because we have a tendency to make Jesus look a lot like ourselves. Albert Schweitzer, who was a scholar was talking about this movement called the Search for This Historical Jesus. It's a group of scholars trying to figure out what Jesus was really like. And he said it's like they are looking down a well and they see a reflection and it's a reflection of themselves looking back. And that happens to lots of us, right? We think our concerns are his concerns, that he values what we value, that he thinks the way we think, that his priorities reflect our priorities, that he views life and the world like we view life and the world. And often it's not explicit, right? It's very subtle. We don't even realize we're doing it, but rather than being conformed to the image of Christ, we begin to conform him to us. Have you ever seen this picture, this portrait? It's called the head of Christ. Anybody? I bet some of you have it hanging in your home. (laughs) And since it's my last sermon, I can say this, I hope you take it down when we're done. (laughs) It's a portrait of Jesus by Warner Warner Solomon. It was painted in 1935. There are 500 million copies of that portrait. It even has been credited with one miracle. Now, folks, I don't know what Jesus looked like, but I'm doggone sure it wasn't like that. (laughs) Jesus was not white. He was not blue-eyed. He was not a good-looking man with uh, brownish-blonde hair. He wasn't. In fact, in her book, What Did Jesus Look Like?, Joan E. Taylor concluded that Jesus Jesus probably was of average height. For that time, that was about 5'5" likely bearded, brown eyes, olive brown skin, black hair. And Isaiah lets us know that he wasn't much to to look at. He was not a beautiful man. Oh, but we like the image by Solomon, don't we? Why? Because it makes Jesus relatable. It encourages what Don McCullough calls the dangerous illusion of a manageable deity. He is clean, he is safe, he is passive, he's a bit effeminate. It's hard to imagine why such a harmless person would be arrested by the Romans, beaten to a pulp and crucified on a cross as a criminal. I mean, that Jesus wouldn't hurt a flea. How you see Jesus is incredibly important because Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. In other words, how we see Jesus is going to be how we see God. And if we get Jesus wrong, we're going to get God wrong. And if we get God wrong, we're in trouble. You've missed it. Our beliefs about Jesus shape our notions and our understanding of God himself. So back to the question, who do you say I am? 
Well, this is one of those moments where Peter shines, right? Simon Peter answered, well, you're, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Um, it's interesting that Peter describes him as the son of the living God. It, it literally says the God who is alive. And you can picture the conversation, right? They're looking at that wall of all those dead gods and idols. And, and Peter's thinking, well, you're not like them. <laughs> you're the son of the God who is alive. And he says you're the Messiah. Now, actually, in Greek, that word Messiah is Christ. And both Messiah and Christ are are the Hebrew and the Greek way of referring to the anointed one, which is a way of referring to Jesus as king. Peter is saying, you're the long-awaited king that we've been focused on, that we've been waiting for. You're king. And every time we say Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, it's a title. We're calling him king. Jesus is king. And someone has rightly said that if you want to say the gospel in three words, the way to say it is Jesus is king. Now, folks, understanding Jesus as our king, I think, is one of the most critical things we need to know and understand to frame our faith and our relationship with Jesus, his identity, and our identity correctly. If we understand Jesus as king, it, it, it becomes the framework for our faith. And I think it's the way the New Testament primarily sees him. Jesus called the Christ or king 529 times in the New Testament. That's the way they describe him. And, and understanding his kingship helps us understand his ministry and his mission. If he is king, well then, kings have an authority over people, a rule, their values and laws, commandments and directives that govern their kingdom. Kings have an agenda, what the king wants to accomplish, and they typically do so in a realm or a place, their kingdom. That's the frame of the New Testament. That's what Jesus was describing as he preached the kingdom of God. And if you have this this framework as Jesus is king, then it dictates our response to Jesus. We've taught people that all they have to do is raise their hand or pray a prayer or walk an aisle, kind of tip their hat to Jesus, and they'll get to go to heaven. That's not what this is about. Jesus isn't looking for simply an intellectual assent to to him. He is looking for a decision, but a radical commitment, that kind of decision. The idea of faith in the New Testament, when you put the collage of the word together, you come out with the notion that it's describing allegiance. Jesus is calling for complete, unconditional loyalty to himself. And if he is king, that makes absolute sense because what does a king want you to do? He wants you to bend the knee. Submit your will to his will. Right? That's why we call him master and lord. He's the ultimate authority in our lives. You see, understanding Jesus as king rules out any kind of nominalism. In other words, a Christian in name only. That's not an option. If we give Jesus his proper place as king, it shapes everything. Jesus doesn't want to be a sidelight. He doesn't want to be an add-on. 
He wasn't, doesn't want to simply be an aspect of your life. He wants to be the center of your life in which your life is built because he's king. That's what he deserves. And our allegiance to Jesus then triumphs over every other allegiance in our life. It's above our allegiance to our family or to our tribe or to our party or to our country. All of those fade in comparison. I mean, this framework as Jesus is king begins to shape our identity and the core of our being. If we see Jesus as king, then all the elements of his kingship or his kingdom come to play in our lives. We are part of his people. We follow his rule. We are on mission, focused on his agenda. We are under his authority, and ultimately we will live in his realm. I mean, think about it. If we If Jesus is our kingdom, we are citizens of heaven and a slave to the Most High, and everything else is secondary, if anything at all. Our ethnicity, our race, our gender, our nationality, whether we're American or Japanese or or Canadian, our political party, our job, our career, those are not the things that define us. What is define us if Jesus is our king is his kingship. And that becomes the center of life, our whole identity becomes wrapped up in him. And that gets me to my first hope for Waterstone. My first hope is that Waterstone will always keep Jesus as king. The reality is the church and as people, it's easy to get distracted from the king and his kingdom. It's easy without thinking, to domesticate Jesus, to make him what we want him to be rather than who he is, to make him more comfortable, more palatable, less mysterious, less challenging, more controllable, more manageable, less demanding, less radical, to make him, well, a lot like us. If Jesus is king, then he should always be challenging us to live differently, think differently, value differently, love differently. If Jesus is king, then we will value and love who and what Jesus values and loves, like the least of these. If Jesus is king, we will pursue his agenda, his kingdom, no matter how radical, how countercultural, how costly, how challenging, how absurd, like loving your enemies and living for others. If Jesus is king, we will be passionate about justice because he is passionate about justice. We will love the unloved and the unlovable. We will care deeply for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, regardless of their status. We will not seek what is simply good for us or for our church, but what is good for the king and the community around us. We will pursue the common good, just not our self-interest. If Jesus is our king, we will work to proclaim the king and his kingdom around the world so that others may know him and serve him. And if Jesus is our king, the goal of the church will not simply to be to survive, but rather to seek the kingdom even at great expense, even if it means the end of us. If Jesus is king, it will shape everything about us and our church. 
So Jesus, having clarified his identity, who he is, he, he turns his attention to his vision for the church. And Jesus' vision for the church is going to flow out of his identity as king. Who he is determines what the church is to, to do and to be. Verse 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. There's a play of words, and there's all kinds of different interpretations of this verse. Uh, And the problem is we get so wrapped up in gates, keys, and rocks that we miss the point. Right, the fundamental point that Jesus is making is he will build his church. Which raises the question, well, what is the church? And why in the world does Jesus want to build one? What's the church? When I say that word, what, what jumps into you? What's the concept that you get in your mind? Well, is church primarily something you go to? You know, a worship service, a building, or a program? Or or do you see it more people-oriented, like a congregation, or maybe the ministers and leaders of an organization? Or maybe for you it's an institution, or maybe you think big picture, it's a denomination, or even bigger picture, it's the universal church, or really big picture, the universal church throughout all history, that's the church. It's really interesting, the word that Jesus uses here, It's, it's not a religious word. It's become that, but originally, ecclesia, is simply the word that was used for an assembly or a gathering or a meeting of people with a common purpose, like the citizens getting together to make a decision. And it's seldom, if ever, used as a descriptor of a building or a place. And often the word has this idea of something dynamic on the move, Like the pilgrim people of God, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, describes the people wandering in the wilderness as an ecclesia, an assembly on the move. Okay, if that's the church, then why does Jesus want to build one? Well, the church flows out of his identity as king, right? Every king has a people that live under his authority, that work to fulfill his agenda, are on mission and following his rule and his reign. They gather as an assembly because of this common confession of Jesus as king. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, the church is my community, it's my hands and feet who, because of their common allegiance to me as king, are on move to further my agenda, my kingdom in this world. The church is not static. It's not a, it, it, it is dynamic. It's not primarily a building or institution or worship service. Not a them. It's a us, those who confess Jesus as king, a force for the kingdom in the world. So the church is God's assembly moving together on mission for the king. And by the way, I'll just throw this in. If you confess Jesus is your king, then you are part of his church. The only question is, are you going to actualize it in your life? Right? The New Testament doesn't have a category for people who say, well, yeah, Jesus is my king, then don't participate in the assembly of his people. That's non sequitur. You can't do that. If he's your king, then you're part of his people and you're on his agenda and about his mission. They go hand in hand. Okay, but back to the verse. 
There is a play on words between Peter, which is Petras in the Greek, and rock, which is Petra in the Greek. Um, what's going on? Some think that what Jesus is saying is that Peter's going to play a primary leadership role. The Catholics go here to justify their notion of a pope. A lot of good New Testament scholars say, well, Peter plays this leadership role in the early church, and he does. But it still seems a little awkward if you're talking to Peter and you're saying, Peter, you don't say on this rock, you say on you I'm going to build my church. So that doesn't seem to fit as well as we think. Others say, well, it's the confession that he made of Jesus as the Christ, as the king. Well, that confession is really important. It's an entryway into the church, but it's, it would be awkward Greek in a strange metaphor to say the rock is the confession. So what is this rock? Well, I think the geological, geographical setting helps us here, right? What are they looking at? They're looking at all those, all those temples, all those idols. And I think what Jesus is saying on this rock in the, in the midst, he's talking about that rock all, he's referencing it. He's saying in the midst of the idols, the deities, the temples, the demonic center of the Greek world, that's where I'm going to build my church in the midst of the public square. And this little preposition on actually in the Greek at times can be translated as against, especially in situations of conflict and battle. And I think Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to play my assembly, my people, in the midst of the cosmic battle that is raging between the truth and untruth. I'm going to plan it so you can overcome the false religions and the false worldviews and fight against the demonic powers that are behind him. I'm going to plant my church in the domain of Satan because that's where it will have the most impact. Okay, if you think this is Nick's silly, strange idea, it's not. Dr. Michael Heiser, an Old Testament scholar and author of The Unseen Realm, takes this position, as does Dr. Elaine Phillips at Gordon College, a professor there, who wrote in a really good commentary, highly regarded Lexham Geographical Commentary, and they both argue that this is the best interpretation because it makes the most sense. I think they're right. It makes sense. And then, okay, if that's the case, then what the heck, what do you mean the gates of Hades will not overcome it? Well, remember that grotto we were looking at? In that day, people saw that grotto, that cave, as an exit point for all the demonic hordes that resided in Hades, the place of death, how they exited it into the world. In other words, when he says the gates of Hades or the gates of hell, he's talking about that cave. And he's saying, even the gates of hell of that place will not withstand the church. And when we picture that in our mind, we typically think the gates are attacking the church. But gates are defensive, right? And Jesus is saying, no, it's the church that's on the offices. It's the church that is going against the demonic spirits and the false religions and the idols in our culture. It's the church that's working against evil and sin and proclaiming life to those who are headed to death and giving hope to those that have no hope and showing compassion to those who are in need, furthering his kingdom in all its dimension. The church is never called to be a fortress hiding away from the world, but rather Jesus is calling it to be a force to transform it. 
I mean, do you get the point? We live in the midst of a cosmic struggle for the hearts and souls of men and women, a cosmic war between good and evil, God and Satan, death and life. And in the midst of that pagan world, God builds his church, his primary offensive weapon, his people living out the gospel among those perishing, the spiritual alive among the spiritually dead, light in the darkness and truth in the midst of air. That's Jesus' vision for the church. And his point, that church will win, right? That church will prevail. The gates of hell cannot withstand the assembly of God's people on the move. Which gets me to my second hope for Waterstone, that Waterstone will always be a prevailing church. You know, in a lot of ways, we, we, we have a good track record. When we're involved with Chan, that is working with asylum seekers, when we're involved with night lights, with respite care, when we're involved with giving heart that works with the homeless, when we participate in reaching the Dungan in Central Asia or Muslims in Guinea or Turkey or Mozambique, when we're partnering with others taking the gospel around the world, we're storming the gates. When as a church we support over 400 Compassion Kids and are involved with Royal Family Kids Camp and North Littleton Promise and Joshua Station, Mile High Ministry and the Denver Street School and Open Door Ministries and the Inner City Health Clinic and His Love Fellowship, those are places where we're on the front lines, storming the gates, prevailing as God's church. My hope for Waterstone is that we will always have an outward focus and not become consumed with our own interests, comfort, and security. I mean, let's be honest, folks. The gravitational pull for the church to simply be about us and ours and act for ourselves is incredibly strong. My hope for Waterstone is that we'll never become a fortress seeking simply to protect the saints and hide away from the world and simply provide good religious entertainment but rather that will always be a force that works to change the community and the city and the world. And my hope for Waterstone is that we will always speak to the defining issues of our day rather than being silent, even though silence is less controversial, more acceptable, and far more safe. So, Jesus, who is Christ the King, will build his church the community of those on mission who have given their allegiance to him. And it will overcome the dominion of Satan and evil and death, idolatry, false gods and religions. And King Jesus' church will prevail. But all of this raises a critical question. And this this, folks, may be the most important thing I have to say today, so I want you to listen carefully. It raises a critical question. That question is, is how do we prevail? How do we overcome? How do we fight? And how do we win as servants of the king? Some in the church have the notion that we will win the cosmic battle if we win the culture wars and make America some kind of Christian nation through political power and control and coercion. And, and some would argue and say that we are justified even to resort to violence if we have to. That's how we win. That's how we prevail. 
They think if we make the laws, if we control the court system, if we own the governmental institutions, if we can win the presidency and the Senate and the House and control the legislators in the states, then we can make America a kind of theocracy. And then we can bring in the kingdom of God. They believe a prevailing church is a politically triumphant church. I believe that kind of triumphalism profoundly, profoundly misunderstands the kingdom and the ways of King Jesus. It's interesting that in the next passage we see that Peter was a bit confused about all of this as well. Let's look. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, raised to a new life. <laughs> and Peter's going, wait, Jesus, I, you just said we were going to win. How, if you're killed, if you die, how do we win? That makes no sense, Jesus. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. No, the church is going to triumph. That means you're going to triumph. You're not going to be killed. Question, why, why does Jesus go to Jerusalem, suffer and die? Because that's how the kingdom prevails. That is how Satan, death, and evil are defeated. By the cross. That's how the, the dead will live and how sin will be crushed and how forgiveness will be given. By King Jesus dying, you see, we forget that we serve a suffering Christ, a suffering king, and that the way up is down. And I want you to notice what uh, Jesus says to Peter when he challenges this. Jesus turned to Peter and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. If we think we win by power, force, coercion, violence, and taking control, then we have forgotten that God operates on a whole different set of rules and that Jesus that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and our allegiance is to a different king, a different kingdom, and a different empire. In fact, look what uh, Jesus then says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. In other words, be willing to suffer whatever it takes to follow Jesus, to follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In a sense, he's saying, remember the ultimate end, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. The world will be redeemed, but not yet. You, you see, as Jesus' followers, we are called to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow the way of Jesus, to lay down our lives. That's how 
The power of evil is destroyed. It's through suffering and self-denial and sacrificial love. It's by giving our lives away and living for others. I, I know it's counterintuitive, but the truth is love defeats the dominion of Satan and the power of evil and ultimately death itself. There are those who would say, and some of you may be thinking it, oh, Nick, you are incredibly naive. I may be. But I don't think so. I mean, look at the early church. This marginal, tiny, oppressed movement over the course of 300 years won over the Roman Empire so that almost 50% of the people living in the empire became followers of Jesus. And they did it without a political movement or social media or being in power or by coercion or violence. Or they, they did it by love. How? Well, when the plagues hit the cities, rather than fleeing, Christians are the ones who stayed and nursed the sick. And they often died because of it. When the young girls were abandoned and exposed and set out to die, it was the church who would gather them and raise them as their own. When the foreigners and immigrants would come to the cities, it was the church who reached out and gave them a place to stay and welcomed them into their homes and provided them a community. They practiced hospitality, and the word in the New Testament for hospitality is philoxenia, which means literally love the stranger. It was the church who treated slaves and women not as objects to be used or possessed, or to be exploited, but as human beings made in the image of God. It was the church who, rather than ignoring the poor and the starving and just looking out for themselves at great expense and sacrifice, provided food and shelter to those who had nothing. And they did that even when they had little to eat themselves. It was the church who not only loved their family and friends and those like them, as Jesus said, even the pagans do that. Rather, they loved those who were not like them. The marginalized, the oppressed, the mistreated, those rejected by others, those of other races and cultures and languages, those who were different. They even loved their enemies. The church became this community that was so incredibly winsome that people took note this people who, because of King Jesus, gave their lives away to others, was willing to suffer, deny themselves, and practice love, even at great sacrifice. This community, this assembly of the King that followed the way of Jesus. And that is how the church won the empire. And that is how the church prevails over the gates of hell. So that gets me to my third hope. That Waterstone will prevail because we are willing to deny ourselves and practice sacrificial love. You know, folks, sometimes I fear that the evangelical movement, because it wants to win, is in danger of losing its soul. And that should trouble us. 
It's not through politics or political parties or movements or social media or the power and coercion. It's, by, it's not by fighting as the world fights that we prevail. It's rather by serving our community, loving the unlovable, the unwanted, the rejected, suffering, self-denial, sacrificial love. Folks, that's, that's what we signed up for. That's what it means to follow Jesus as your king. To give your life away. It never was simply about us and getting to heaven. It's a nice side benefit, but it's about making Jesus king of our lives. Making him the center. And thus pursuing his kingdom, no matter what it takes. King Jesus will build his church. And it will prevail through love. Years ago, I came across a little quote that inspired me and shaped my dreams for Waterstone. In 1401, the city leaders in Seville, Spain, decided they were going to build a new cathedral to replace the grand mosque that had served as the cathedral until then. Legend has it that the members of the cathedral chapel uh, all agreed to a resolution. This was the resolution. Let us build a church so beautiful and so grand that those who see it will take us mad, take us for mad. <laughs> they had my, uh, an immense cathedral, an amazing architectural structure. But I took it as a challenge for, well, not for a building, but rather for a church as a community of God's people. Can we, those who confess Jesus as our king, become a community so beautiful, so grand, so committed to King Jesus, so focused on furthering his kingdom in the world, so willing to deny ourselves, so committed to loving others and living the way of Jesus that people will take a look at us and think us mad. That's Jesus's vision for his church. And that's my hope for Waterstone. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you lay out a, a task for us that on our own we can't accomplish. So we pray that you would fill us as God's people and as God's church and make us radical in our commitment and amazing in our love and use us in this community and in our world to prevail for your kingdom. Help us be so committed, Lord, to you that others think us mad. If we do that, then we'll be living in the way of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen.